Welcome to BAFTA's Heritage Podcast, featuring monthly conversations on films, TV programs and games recognized by the Academy since 1947. Find out more about how BAFTA has been celebrating and inspiring creative excellence at BAFTA.org forward slash heritage. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming tonight, and welcome. Um, My name's Emma Morgan. I'm the Deputy Chair of the BAFTA's Television Committee, and I'd just like to welcome you all to this BAFTA Heritage Screening celebrating Channel 4's award-winning foreign affairs series, Unreported World. I'll be handing over to my colleague from the BAFTA TV Committee, Brian Wood, to give you a little bit more background about tonight's event. So, on the TV Committee, we kind of think about things that ought to be talked about and ought to be celebrated, and, and... Examples of excellence in across television. And about six months or so ago, we were talking about uh, current affairs. And Unreported World, in my opinion, just stands out uh, in, in, in the, the, the territory because it's been going for 16 years now. Um, 21, no, 31 series, 31 series, uh, almost over 200 episodes. And... At a time when we seem to be becoming increasingly insular in this country uh, and isolationist, it's, it's a really, really important point where audiences can connect with those parts of the world that they don't normally come across. Um, George Carey, who's in the audience here, was, was the person who came up with it originally um, and agreed it with David Lloyd uh, who was then commissioning editor for News and Current Affairs at Channel 4 back in 2000. And Eamon, who Tulip will be introducing along with the rest of the, the panel, um, was the first producer of the series. Uh, and since then, I think anyone who's seen it will acknowledge it's pioneered new ways of making television, the, the, just the freshness of it when it first came on television, the way that the people would chat away in, in, in the language and then turn to camera and give you an instant translation. The, the, so many different techniques, and they've refreshed that time and time again to keep it fresh and keep it moving. And it's been a huge influence to, I think, all, all parts of, of current affairs in terms of trying to make it more immediate and more instant. Uh, and so that's why we thought it would be a really good idea to celebrate the brilliance that is Unreported World. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here today and pulling yourselves away from Brexit coverage and the England football game tonight. Um, it's a real pleasure to have such uh, experienced and uh, accomplished filmmakers with us here uh, to really get a sense of, of what life is like behind the camera and what makes this programme such a success. Unreported World has been taking us to all corners of the globe uh, since 2000, um, giving us really precious glimpses into the lives of others, um, stories of, of bravery, of, of madness, of, of strength, of fear... And what has really struck me watching it over the years is how it transcends the distances between us, the space uh, and the the difference in experiences. And and it always tends to come down to a few things about human behaviour, which is why we connect, I think, so much with these stories. Generally, it's about the search for peace, the love for your family and for your friends, and wanting a better life for your children. And, And this programme has... Shown, so, shown those elements of life and allowed us to identify with people all over the world in that way uh, so many times. It's, as we've heard, the longest-running foreign affairs programme in the UK. It's won uh, countless awards. Uh, and, and here to tell us more about it, we've got documentary and filmmaker Edward Watts to my left, um, foreign, journalist, foreign affairs journalist and author uh, Ramita Navai on my other left here, uh, Eamon Matthews, Uh, who is the commissioning editor. No, uh, you are the executive producer for Unreported World uh, and uh, Siobhan Sinaton, who's commissioning editor um, for News and Current Affairs at Channel 4. Um, Eamon, just just start by telling us, what what is the, if there is one, what is the recipe for success with Unreported World? How has it managed to sort of be there for so long and be so successful? Well, at the very beginning, George Carey, who's sitting there, and it's, it's great to see George there. I remember George said um, that the series has to be about the people themselves. 
it can't be us talking about them. It can't fall into the... I mean, not all news reporters do it. You certainly don't. But sometimes you get a news reporter talking about starving children like this, victims like this, as though they are lumps of meat. George was always clear from the very, very beginning that we had to immerse ourselves in the lives of the people so that we felt like those people, we experienced life as those people did. And I think that's the fundamental thing. Siobhan, you commission many of these stories and there is so much happening in the world. I'm sure you get many people coming to you. How do you decide which ones make it onto the programme? Um, well, it's a very collaborative um, effort between um, Quicksilver, the producers, the reporters, everybody works together to um, develop the best stories. And I suppose George set um, a very high bar for us by giving the programme the name that it has, which is Unreported. The clue is in the title. If you've seen it elsewhere, then I'm afraid we can't do it, um, which is both a blessing and a curse. Obviously, it makes it, especially when you're going into Series 32, it makes it more and more difficult to find um, unreported stories. But that is, you know, either it's, it has to be um, a new angle on a very familiar news story. So, um, you know, some of the clips that you saw in that were big, big news stories. They weren't unreported news stories, but we tried to find a different way into the story um, or else they're stories that we just haven't come across at all. And the whole way it's put together, Amita, you've obviously made a number of films, as you have, Ed, um, it is quite different, or it certainly was when it first started in 2000, where you've got a two-person team. Just explain what it's like working on it on the ground. Um, it, it's only, I think, served our, the, the teams well, being such a small team. So, so many of our stories are in hostile um, environments, or they're undercover. So you blend in, naturally. And I was telling the team um, earlier that... Um, Twice, um, I've... Uh, have, you, have you ever gone as a couple, Ed? I haven't, no. Oh, right. Unfortunately, so twice... I missed that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> they never would let us go together. Why? <laughs> well, I was saying to the team earlier, twice I've been um, sent as, as an undercover couple, and twice I felt like the cougar because I've been <laughs> sent, with a, sent with a younger, um, a younger producer, director. But, it's, but it really works. And as Siobhan said... Being, you know, being in a, such a small team, not only you, can, you, can you blend in, but also it's really collaborative. Mm. You do everything together, which also means as a reporter, you, know, you just soak up new skills. You co-produce, because you have to. Um, and I would say it's also an advantage gaining trust. Mm. You know, so, for example, working in the Middle East, endless cups of tea. If there are only two of you, you're automatically let in. You can automatically see tribal leaders rather than, you know, a whole group with loads of equipment. I made 11 unreported worlds, um, so I think I was the fourth or fifth uh, director who'd filmed the most. Um, but out of all my films, people always cited this particular moment as the thing that had stayed in their memory the most. And we went out to a corner of India where, essentially, I mean, I was completely unaware of it at the time, but there's this huge coal mining industry that's out of control, and the coal in the ground is actually spontaneously combusted. So there were hundreds of miles of country that are just on fire. The coal in the ground is burning, and it's burning underneath people's feet. So there are villages on the top, and people, villages just tumble into these... Uh, into the spaces created by the coal burning out. And yet they're also, they stay there because they're making their livelihood out of this coal that's all around them, basically, in this desperate, unorganised, artisanal way. Um, so that's the kind of setting for this particular scene. And it was, it was just, I mean, it, it really, for me, it sums up what's best about Unreported because we'd heard there was a, a corner of this coal field where there were people doing artisanal mining and we just went there. We had no idea what we'd find. There's a whole team of people who are constantly trying to find the next Unreported World, a part of the team. So Siobhan and there's always two assistant producers. That's how I started, on the desk, as it's called. And so there's already, in that case in particular, James Brabazon, who was uh, one of the... Uh, think series producers at the time had spotted this a photo article about this extraordinary area and so that one I was very lucky because that one just came ready-made mm. it's just an extraordinary environment we knew that there would be stories that were very unreported world this this humanity that you would never see in another way that you can only see by going into the middle of you know, obscure places and just to see an eight-year-old kid living that it's, it's almost like a sort of biblical Existence, rolling this coal, you know, it says so much about 
the experience of being human in these places. And that was something that I felt Unreported World was so brilliant at capturing because of the approach, because of you know, the fact that we just go to places and, and just rock and roll when we were there. So I was going to say, how, just, just how does that work in that example, what you just turn up for a couple yeah, of weeks so was, and just roll? Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, we were just driving around this area and we'd heard that there were these places where there were farmers, formerly farmers, who now, because of the environmental destruction, had had to turn to artisanal coal mining. And so we went there, and he was that, that boy. We just saw him coming down the hill almost as soon as we got out of the car. And so it was one of those, um, yeah, one of those gifts, I suppose. It was, all, it was also it was a very visual environmental story, which is quite rare. Like we're always, We are always trying to do as many environmental stories as we can, but a lot of the time they are not incredibly visual because things like climate change, they happen so slowly that you need to be there. You know, they're very good for, for projects where you can go back you know, six months later. or six, we, We've got a three-week period, so very, very visual environmental stories are like gold dust mm. to us. And as soon as we saw that photo essay, it was apparent that um, it was going to be a really good for, for tele- television rather than a newspaper article on, on climate change. When you're making that decision to go to these places, and we've all seen what is the result of this and how important it is to do it, but for you it's a very personal choice where your personal safety um, is compromised in some situations. How do you make those decisions? Is it a no-brainer, or do you often sit there and go, right, do I actually want to do this? Well, some of the situations may look far more dangerous than they are because they're really considered. So I don't take crazy risks, actually. I don't. And Channel 4 wouldn't let me take crazy risks. Um, And as a journalist, you're often really frustrated by um, the the, the security protocol form that you have to fill in um, for Channel 4. And you complain about it and you moan about it, and often the journalist wants to push the boundaries and you want to go to places that that, that Channel 4 or Eamon may not allow you to. Um, But you're always thankful, actually, and you always, especially when you're out in a country, you know that there is a backup plan, you've got contingency plan, and that you know that there is backup back home and they're they're the moments when you think okay okay it's it's a really good thing Um, so yeah I would say that we don't take crazy risks Mm. obviously you cover a story and for example like Syria um, and for example some of the scariest stories I've covered have been in in Latin America you know I feel far more comfortable in the Middle East for example than I do with with gangs in Latin America so you know you, you you sometimes go into situations where things happen Um, that you never expected, but that's part of the job. With Syria, what happened is that it was the early days of the uprising. So the uprising in Syria, um, as you know, was February 2011. Syrians were going out protesting against Assad, uh, emboldened by the Arab Spring, what had happened in Tunisia um, and Egypt specifically. And we, we spent a lot of time setting this particular film up, about three months, and I worked with director Wael Dabous, who unfortunately couldn't make it today, and we were given very strict instructions um, by the activists. I know, Eamon, you don't always like the word activist, but they, the, the, the ordinary Syrian protesters who called themselves activists had formed this type activist network. Um, had given us strict instructions. We flew into Damascus, and actually afterwards, it's quite, in, uh, it's quite an interesting story how we managed to get the visas. We went with tourist visas, and they told us to um, spend three, a couple of days, three or four days um, going to the tourist hotspots because we might be uh, tailed, we might be monitored and followed, and to wait for a phone call. We got the phone call, and they told us how and where to get to, uh, uh, how and where we needed to, to go to. And we, it, was a, it was a town that was about 50 kilometers northwest of Damascus, um, and now an ordinary Syrian town, now quite an infamous town, Madaya. Uh, we arrived in Madaya in the evening, and about 20 locals had turned out to brief us. Farmers, nurses, there was a doctor, students... And half an hour into this meeting, uh, a local ran in. He was a lookout, and he shouted, they're coming. And within seconds, everybody in that room had just fled. Wal and I were bundled into a car, and we were taken to a safe house in Madaya. Of course, this was totally unexpected. And we spent the next three days stuck in the safe house with three activists who were on a wanted on a blacklist, wanted blacklist. What, what was that like for you when you were there locking the door three days not knowing what was going to happen terrifying i mean it was really stressful so up until 
we got the phone call to tell us that the Shabiha um, were going to raid our street. Um, we, had, we, we, we had had to whisper because our building was surrounded by uh, militia. Now, normally they choose safe houses. Um, every single safe house in Madaya that the activists worked out of um, had an escape route. This one had two escape routes. That's why they took us to this one. However, they couldn't. There were there was a, two back windows where you could jump onto other buildings and escape, but they couldn't use these um, escape routes because we were entirely our building was entirely surrounded, and you could see the guys if you poked your head up. Um, and I'll tell you how stressful it was. And Wael won't mind me telling you this story. Um, Wael and I argued a lot. It was <laughs> about what we're going to do. I mean, also, what, three, three days stuck in there and I think one can of tuna. So everybody was very hangry as well, <laughs> which made matters worse. And the guys, the three guys we were with were, were absolutely brilliant. But at one point, Abu Jafar, who we became very close to, and I stayed in touch with, with for, for a while, he's now dead. Two of those men um, have been killed. Um, he turned around... To, to, to me and Wael and said, for God's sakes, if you don't stop arguing, I'm going to give myself up and I'm going to put my head out the window and say, take me, Assad, take me. It's better than having to put up with this old couple. <laughs> so, so, I mean, their humour at these moments were, were, was extraordinary. And I'll tell you, you know, that really was serious. So at that point, they knew of one neighbour who disappeared. Over a dozen men disappeared that day, who were all friends of the activists and who were our neighbours. We heard the Shabiha in, in our block breaking down doors. Um, and those men uh, have never been, been seen again. Um, the guys, they gave us instructions. They told us to sit in front of the door, holding our British passports up, because they said when they come in, they won't say a polite hello and shake your hand, Ramita. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to come in, they're going to beat you up. So just wave your passport and start shouting, um, shouting English. But we, we, we were more concerned for these three guys. You know, they were wanted guys. And I, if they'd been taken away, I knew I'd never see them again. And you were on the phone to Siobhan during this time? To that man oh. sitting, sitting there, Ev, right. who, okay. <laughs> who, who was actually brilliant. I, I managed to phone him. We were, we were pretty scared... To, to, we were terrified. You know, the guys told us that, it, you know, to be really careful with electronic communications. I phoned Ev, and Ev, were you, were you out? Was it two in the morning or something? Four in the morning. Were you on, were you on the Raz or were you in bed? I was in bed. Oh, right, okay, sorry. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Four in the morning. Poor Ev, and I just, yeah, was I quite coherent? I just was so scared, and you really calmed me down. Um, and he knew... Um, so obviously there's a ch chain and poor Siobhan. Um, I think a lot of people probably didn't sleep that night. What, what uh, was it like for you back at base when, when that's going on? It's completely terrifying for all of us. I mean, just watching it really brings it back quite viscerally. That is, that was one of that really was I think one of the worst days and um, in all the time I've been involved in unreported because we were completely and utterly helpless. Like often whenever people get into trouble in the field, there is something that you can do. I mean, we've like chartered planes from different countries to go in and rescue people. And um, there was really nothing that we could do except wait and, you know, and wait for news. And, you know, you've put in place all of these security plans. You've thought it through so carefully, as Ramita says. It's three months in the planning. Mm -hmm. They're very believable as a couple. Uh, as Ramita says, they argued constantly. <laughs> um, Wild speaks Arabic. They're there on a language course. They've got all the tourist um, uh, footage on their camera, everything. And then something goes wrong that you just... You know, they hadn't been... The, the Shabia had not been in that neighbourhood until that moment. And it's really... In, it's one of those moments where everything's fine until it's not fine. And uh, all the prep you do can't prepare you for it. And there's one other element to the film, um, which rightly won an Emmy, which was fantastic. But when it was first um, viewed by some um, really good American producers at PBS we work with, who you know we respect enormously, they said, we, we've got to give it more context. We need to get some experts dialed into this film who, who will explain what's going on. And what became apparent was the experts said, well, we can't really give any context because this is what we want to know. This is telling us what's actually going on. And I think that's another fundamental thing with Unreported World, that you want to be giving information that the experts want to know, mm -hmm. not merely providing some, you know, 
visual interest that um, you know they can talk about. They're, you want them to be hungry to know what's going on, and that's why actually being stuck in a house like that, you know, someone might say, "Well, what does that tell you about Syria?" Actually, at that time, it told you a great deal of what you needed to know, um, and that's really important. We shouldn't. None of us should be afraid of sometimes just going out and reporting what's happening. Mm. And certainly, I think at the time here, it was the, it was the first reporting from outside of Damascus. Yeah, it I was. That yeah. anybody had yeah. done. And it must be difficult for, for, for you as commissioners and programme makers and, and reporters on that to, to get that, that line, to balance the risk and, uh, you know, the, the editorial, you know, the need to tell the story. And that's something, obviously, you know, the BBC everywhere has, has that dilemma uh, daily. Um, but, but how do you make that decision? Like, you know, where do, where do you tip? Because, you, you know, there are things you can plan for and there are obviously lots of things that you can't plan for. Well, certainly I would have drawn the line. I wouldn't have knowingly <laughs> sent Romita into a safe house that she couldn't escape from that wasn't so safe for, for three days. Definitely not. You know, the, the plans that we, we thought, it's an incredibly... Even then, it was apparent. I don't think any of us knew how Syria was going to unravel, but it was apparent that this was going to be a very big story and we didn't know anything. We were only seeing one side of events from Damascus. So I suppose what you're really weighing up is um, the importance of getting that information and then planning as best you can. And I mean, I'm reported in terms of risk. One of the things that I really learned from it was the fact that as, as the team, they would never accept just kind of, you know, the UN would say, oh, it's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, I did a film in the Congo, and the UN was saying, oh, no one can leave the town, you know. And uh, the unreported world mentality was kind of, well, where, you know, what are the ordinary people doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something you were saying earlier, Raymond, you know. And that I think a lot of the time, you know, the risk is presented as this kind of, you know, it's impossible, you can't go there. But there are people living there, living their normal lives. And unreported world was very good at looking at, you know, where people were and how they were living and finding, just actually looking at the truth, mm. you know, beyond the kind of hype and to say, well, you know, maybe we can go down this road because we know there are people in that town or we know there are refugees going in that town. And so kind of getting actually into the detail and the truth beyond the kind of hype of it's massively dangerous. And that definitely factored into the risk planning really brilliantly. But of course there's a line where you will just say, no, I'm sorry, it's too dangerous. Yeah, like we yeah. Were always Eduardo has been across <laughs> that was, line. I was always going, yeah. we've got to go there. And Shimon was like, no, no you can't, no. you know. And um, so there was, that, there was that battle as well. And that's um, frustrating at the time, but you appreciate it, you know. Yeah. You, you do need somebody there, don't you? Just kind yeah. of telling you. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it. Yes. One thing that's existed um, throughout Unreported World is diversity. I'm always slightly nervous of using that word because we've never pursued diversity for the sake of diversity. We've pursued it because by having a bunch of diverse reporters and PDs, you get enormous extra skills. And um, people sometimes have said to me, unreported world's very campaigning. Actually, it's coming from within themselves. And they feel moved and angry and they want to do something. And the campaigning is coming from within the audience. It's not us banging a drum. We're, we're reporting. We're saying, once again, this is what's going on. You don't need an expert to say, da di da Here it is. This is what it's like to be a family in a tent um, you know, with, a, with a disabled um, child. To start with, we, we always had diverse reporters, but I, looking back over it, I realised how important it is. It really is important. And, and in your experiences as well, um, Ramita, I mean, you travel a lot in the Middle East. Do you speak Arabic no. yourself or Farsi or anything? Okay. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I speak, yeah, just a little, little, little bit. Yes, I, 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 I went on a course last year. I speak uh, Persian. Um, which is very similar to Dari, so okay. I can communicate um, in Jamaica. Afghanistan, drug for, for example. In Afghanistan. Yeah, yes. so, yeah, so yeah, I did a story about child drug addicts in Afghanistan, and we um, travelled up north to Badakhshan, um, and it, it, it was it much easier. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that really, there were no, very few reporters. Actually, I think a week after we came back from Badakhshan, if you remember, a, a, a large group of doctors. Um, had been killed. I think one of them was a British doctor, actually. That was a week after we were there. So it was really kind of 
no reporters up there at the time. And speaking the language, especially when it comes to safety, makes it so much easier because I can hear what's going on around me and I can understand it. Um, but yeah, it does, it does help when you feel like you fit in. Mm-hmm. So in Latin America, um, I, I, I also understand the language and I look like I could be mm-hmm. Latin. So it, it does help. But as Siobhan was saying, I know that um, y- y- you take quite a lot of care and time deciding you know, who goes where. And sometimes, for example, I've been in all-women teams, and that's helped as well. But, I mean, likewise, you know, you can end up somewhere where you don't fit in, in Africa, for example, and, like, Ed can be the best person for the job mm-hmm. somewhere where he sticks out. The film that uh, Shauna Kinnear and Wilde Debuse made a, about Ebola. Suzanne, who I know is here, Suzanne Lavery, um, we've been monitoring the story... And Suzanne kept, if my memory's right, chipping away at it and eventually said, you know, we could do Ebola and we could do it safely. We've talked a bit... In fact, this film clip brings together lots of themes. You often need to break down safety into digestible lumps and say, look, this is what we're going to do. Can we do that? And if we can do that, like climbing a mountain, can we do this? Mm. And Suzanne did that. And at the time... There had been no, certainly no long-form reporting of Ebola, hardly any television news coverage. It was very, very early on. I make no apology for the fact that normally, instead of looking for themes and then finding stories that you back into a theme, we look, or in this case, Suzanne was looking at what was happening in the world. And if you look at what's happening in the world and make films about it and tell people why it matters, you're often ahead of the curve. If you take an issue and look for films to back into the issue, you're often doing stuff that happened three years, four years, five years ago. The the team were brave, but they also filmed with a lot of very brave people trying to monitor the spread on the ground. Um, The film did make a difference. Um, When it was shown here in the UK, number 10 were ringing up for it so people could look at it because there hadn't been any real reporting. It was shown in the States. The White House looked for it, um, called for it. it um, the NIH um, watched it and sent someone out. And later on in the history of how the epidemic was dealt with, that was an absolutely key moment, so it made a difference. They showed the film, actually, to all the um, US military personnel who went out there. So the film made, made a great difference. And we, we, you can't often say that in television. Normally in television, it's incremental. But there it made a very tangible difference. But, um, you know, we were talking about safety, we were talking about characters, and we were talking about letting people speak for themselves uh, without the need for experts. And um, there we go. I think this was there in the summer of 2014, early summer of 2014, when really there there weren't many people going out, and so much of that was because of the fear. And going out and reporting on it helped... (coughs) The plan was to help reduce that fear, although, you know, it it took time. Um, what I mean again was this? This was risk of a very different time to, uh, type to what we're used to, sort of bombs and you know kidnaps and whatever else. I mean, and many broadcasted broadcasters waited because because they were concerned about the safety of their people. How much of a concern? I mean, clearly it was a huge consideration, but how come you were the earliest? I guess well, to do it because I think risk has to be assessed in a logical and scientific way and sometimes that means saying no to a film and you saw there were people from msf there there were people from the world health organization although we were nervous about what the safety measures they were taking at the time and sadly that proved to be um, valid but we took advice from the best medical experts in britain in america and they said if you do these things you will be all right to Sean and Well, and we followed it scrupulously. It still required, on their part, enormous bravery and psychological steel. Um, but I think um, it's very easy with something like that to say, Ebola, it's quite impossible, we can't do it. Mm, yes. <laughs> when, in fact, you need to say, well, what is it you're going to do? Um, and how can I achieve these bite-sized Steps. I'm mixing my metaphors, but if you're climbing the mountain, how do you get up to that ridge? Where do you go afterwards? And if you do it and approach it logically, then you can do reporting like that. 
And it's not doing it for its own sake because, oh, it's dangerous, look at me. Mm. It's doing it because there are ordinary people caught up in these situations and they have a, we have a duty to bear witness to what they're going through and to give them a voice, which goes back to how we started this. Well, I think that um, certainly I feel and the team feel that it's really important that there's a whole range of stories in Unreported World, that uh, um, it, the war isn't all um, disease and, and war, and in amongst all of that there are um, stories of amazing bravery and of hope and of great social change that is going on across the world, and we try and reflect that in, in, in at least one or two films um, each run. Um, I think the best films can be summed up very, very simply. I think that's true for all documentary. And um, Danny Bogado, who's the director and has made some of our most amazing films, um, I think we were sitting beside um, each other at a dinner of some sort, and he said, um, do you know whenever the Khmer Rouge left Cambodia, they not only separated all families, they destroyed the database so they could never find each other again. And now there's a television programme that's reuniting them. Okay, go do it. I mean, it was just, it's, it's just an incredible um, idea. Um, so I loved, I loved how modern it was. I like stories that can only be made now. I don't like us to make stories that could have been made 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, and I thought that this was a really modern way to tell a story about effectively the legacy of war. I mean, wars don't just affect um, the generation that is living through it. They, uh, it affects generations, um, you know, several generations afterwards. Um, and I thought there would be a whole audience that didn't really ever know anything about, the, a younger audience particularly, that didn't know anything about Pol Pot or the Khmer Rouge or the Killing Fields, and that this was a, a really interesting and accessible way to bring people into that story. So um, we went off and did it. So just to give you a bit of background, that is exactly what happens. People write into this television programme. It's kind of Cambodian long-lost family. They write into the television programme saying, I've lost my sister. I last saw her in, at the crossroads in Phnom Penh at this time on this date. Can you help me find her? Then the contributors record an appeal, which is broadcast on television, and hopefully and they try and bring them together. And whenever they bring contributors into the studio, they sometimes they've managed to find their family, and sometimes they haven't. So they don't really they don't really know. Is that the sort of film you think you'd have made at the beginning, back in two thousand, or is that sort of quite different? Has it evolved to be something very different now? To I think I think it has evolved. I think there certainly has been um, more of a focus on character. Um, I think we I think we've moved slightly from slightly more reportage style in the early days to um, borrowing much more from, from classic documentary techniques of focus on character, of narrative, um, and of, of being with people at a moment of real jeopardy in their life. You know, I think those, those are the things that we now really look for whenever we're deciding whether to commission something, um, which is, again, it's quite, it's quite a high bar. You know, we only have three-week shoots, so... Our poor APs have got to identify brilliant, brilliant characters at a distance, um, get, get access, make sure it's a big enough story of big enough importance, and then make sure that they're having a sort of life-or-death battle in the three weeks of our filming period. So it's quite... It's quite the way it's evolved is quite a big ask, but, they, um, yeah, they meet it brilliantly. Because that... I mean, that's, again, a prime example, being of really pulling on your heartstrings. Is that a, a prerequisite? Because... Many of the films have that. I don't think it's a prerequisite. I mean, I think it's really important. We've, we've eight, eight films in a series, and for me, it's very important that they feel different to each other. There might be a film that's, um, you know, from the front line in Kobani, and there might be a film that is much more softer and emotional like this. So I, think, I don't think you have to have that level. It's very rare that you get that level of emotion, so I don't think you have to have it in every film. But I think it has to have a human... Every film has to have a real human core to it, a human heart to it, where people can identify with those characters and put themselves in that situation um, so that they, they can really identify with it. Yeah, I think, I think to a degree. As in Ramisra, I just want to reflect a bit on how you get to the point where, I mean, for so many people, this is a dream. This is a dream job to be making these sorts of film for the, for films for this kind of broadcaster. How do you get to the point where you're doing this? 
Well, <laughs> it's a long fight. <laughs> um, I first saw, I saw the first series of Unreported World, and I remember thinking, I want to do that. And uh, so I was kind of like a heat-seeking missile, trying to always get close to this guy and his little <laughs> team, and um, finding, trying to find a way to get into the office, first of all, and then to get on the desk, which is where I went as assistant producer, and then trying to get that first break. And, uh, I mean, that's, it's, it's really been the most amazing thing to have the opportunity to work on it because you learn it's like film school as well as everything else as well as learning about the world and getting the opportunity to make a difference I mean there are to to experience filmmaking when you're just on your own basically my first film was with Ev in Japan uh, where I learned a lot from him a very experienced reporter um, about how to drink as well right. <laughs> most and and Eamon he never likes us to talk about it but he is an amazing filmmaking guru and I learned a lot from him and I mean I made 11 by my third one I think he said got to pull your bootstraps up <laughs> make the next one better and um, I did <laughs> with his guidance so yeah I mean it's, it's been an amazing opportunity to work on it um, and I guess it's just a matter of clawing your way close to it to get that chance and you've had an incredible career up to the point you know that you came to Channel 4 and started doing films for them as well how did you get in yeah so I'd been working um I was based in Tehran I'd been working there as the Tehran correspondent for the times um and I'd started to work in in the region and a friend of mine actually said let's pitch some Iran stories Uh, there's this great program unreported world and she uh we decided on a story which was chemical weapons victims um, and I had, yeah, so it, it, something was at the time, you know, it was a big story in, in Iran at the time. Mm-hmm. Iran has the highest number of chemical weapons victims. Actually, Unreported World didn't want the story because, of course, so much of it is historical. Um, and I was in Iran, hadn't seen an Unreported World, went along and met the, the legendary Ed Brayman, <laughs> who put his feet up on the table <laughs> and basically <laughs> shouted at us for about <laughs> half an hour, <laughs> barked at us for half an hour. Um, and then I, they wanted me to go and um, film an interview. So I filmed an interview, but actually I was covering elections in Iran and there's a nuclear crisis. And it took me ages to film this interview. Finally sent it and, and, and got the job. And by this point, of course, I had watched An Unreported World. And I just thought, oh my God, <laughs> it's, there's done? so much reporter in this <laughs> <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> but, but actually, Eamon, you know, really prepped me well. Just do what you do. And of course, the first one, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it, it, it turned out okay. And yeah, I made 20 films in the end. <laughs> How do you find and support young up-and-coming um, directors and reporters? I think, it, I mean, it's a, in some ways it's got slightly harder, uh, only because the cameras have got more sophisticated. The odd thing is with technological progress, the kit gets more complicated. But we still have a lot of people who are making their first long film, uh, long-form films with us. I'm probably a bit more cautious now about what I throw people into. I used to take the attitude, well, they can head off, and if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, well, they spend a bit more time thinking about it. You know, it's sort of good, but, but I'm much more cautious about that now. I'm much more cautious that we stack the odds very firmly in people's favour. But a lot of people have made their first films. Reporters, they've got to be good journalists, but they're, they're different skills to other parts of television. They've got to have great empathy with characters and great empathy with the viewers. They, they, they're almost now that we're more character-driven. They, 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 they are people who need to know when to let the spotlight drift away from them and when to come back to them because they need to pick the film up and move it forward on the ground. And they need to be able to have an intimate relationship with the audience, with the camera. Um, and th- those are tough skills to have. Um, and so it requires you know, a special bunch of, of people who can do that. Do you know what I would like to say as a reporter, and I think you probably feel the same, it's su- it was such an exciting series to work on, to be able to, to work on these stories that... Can you imagine you know, trying to pitch uh, uh, to a commissioner half hour about you know, child child uh, prisoners in Burundi, which, which doctor, you know, which hunters, which killings in Papua New Guinea, for example. Stories that are really extraordinary, but that don't necessarily have a UK or a US or a Western angle. Mm. I mean, it's, it's really unusual, and as a journalist, really exciting. It is very exciting, I have to say. The very 
because um, I, I made some unreported worlds like way back in the mists of time. And my very first one was actually with um, Evan Williams, who's over there as well. I just remember really That's clearly. That's the reason they put heritage in the. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it's really polite. clearly going on this first trip, not really knowing entirely what I was doing, meeting um, tribal elders in the resistance in West Papua, <laughs> um, who were all semi naked, wearing penis gourds. That was our very first night's filming. And the Indonesian military arrived, and we had to run out the back. And we ran out, and I fell into an open sewer, and I got back up again. And uh, these motorbikes appeared out of nowhere, and I had to get on one and I had to get off the other. And the military were flashing lights behind us, and I, we were still using tape in those days. I stuck the tapes down my underwear, thinking, <laughs> no, they won't touch that. And I remember thinking, really clearly thinking two things simultaneously. One, my mum would kill me if she knew where I was. And B, and secondly, I really am going to love working in unreported world. Yeah. You know, it's just, it is. Yeah. And there was a thing, I think, you know, there's a lot of people here uh, who have worked on the series in mm. the audience, and it was this stri- real camaraderie. Yeah. And there's real humour there as well. I remember at one point, James Brabazon, when he was series producer, I think he's in here somewhere, he put up a sign in the, on the wall, and it said, Complaints Department. And underneath it, there was an arrow pointing to this very small violin. <laughs> <laughs> just summed it up. <laughs> and you were having jokes like that all the time, you know. Um, I mean, I don't think Aidan will mind me saying on that India film, our fixer, after we've been there two days, I mean, Aidan, he's about like seven foot tall and he's quite a forceful individual. And he, like Barrett, the fixer, and the fixer came up to him and said, Ed, Ed, Aidan is mentally ill. <laughs> and like, yeah, and? <laughs> you know, and I went upstairs, Aidan was like, well, I think that went really well. <laughs> and um, that was the kind of, you know, it was the humanity of the team yeah. behind it as well. So it wasn't all, you know, though you were dealing with incredibly sad and, and difficult stories, there was a humanity in the whole process yeah. as well. And Ed Brayman, the legend. Um, I mean, it is like was... a big family. It's like we're like one of those huge Mormon families. You just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger as more people join. Yeah. Um, but there is a real camaraderie with people. Yeah, there was obviously a lot of love for this, for this programme in, in this room and on this panel, of course. What, what challenges lie ahead? Because you've had 16 years. That's a very mm. good run. Um, you know, we've got lots of digital media. You've got Vice coming up. It's announced it's expanding, um, you know, focused on a very young audience, which I imagine is traditionally you, you get a lot of that demographic. Um, Eamon, what, what are the main challenges? How do you keep it going at, with this momentum? Well, I think, first, I mean, fairly obviously, you're looking for fresh stories. And a lot of the story, stories that I see about aren't fresh. They're rehashes. And after a while, audiences say, yeah, I get this type of story. It's going to be a gang in Latin America and they'll do this and they'll have tattoos and on we go. And so it's trying to identify the really fresh trends in the world. And um, we talked a lot about social change, women struggling for freedom, girls struggling for freedom, um, oppressed minorities. You know, we, on, on the most recent one, we used a transgender reporter, which is fantastic. In fact... The, the being transgender was neither here nor there. She did the film because she knew all about mm. Afghanistan. And I think trying to broaden viewers' minds in those ways are important. But we're also using the web much more. Our web shorts were getting how many hits, do you reckon, in the end? Yeah, so on our digital shorts, I think, I think from the last 12 uh, unreported we did, uh, they got about 50 million oh, views wow. online. How long are they? They're anywhere from between one and a half to four minutes long. So there's a whole new area of reaching people there. But the, there's clearly the whole, you know, people used to call it citizen journalism, but that's a bit arch. But now people are filming stuff on their iPhones and we're trying to integrate much more with what we're saying. We'll give voice to the reporters. Well, that needn't just be the, the idea of going and interviewing them and filming them. It's also saying to them, film some stuff for us. Mm. Show us what it's like. Film a bit before we get there. And we're doing that much more. Um, and I think, but I think the other big thing for um, foreign affairs, and then I'll, I'll shut up about this, is that I become more and more interested in finding stories that relate to the human experience, so you relate to characters. And then films become less about the country. They'll tell you something about the country, but they tell you something about the modern human experience, and it could sometimes be in any country. And there are other places where the... Uh, emphasis, rather like the early days of Unreported World, is much more on the reporter. You know, look at me. I'm going to stride out and leap in and out of Land Rovers all over the world and look at me and we'll meet some people. 
I think the way foreign affairs reporting needs to go is, is to look for those common shared human experiences. And that's when you really relate to any audience, whether they're young, whether they're old, because people say, well, yes, mm. I get that. Whether or not I'm interested in this country or that country, I'm interested that people are having to live like that. And what about the appetite for long form? Because everything you're, you know, not everything, but lots of the things you're seeing online, on Facebook feed, it, it's a quick hit, it's subtitles, there's no reporter. And you get that, you get the human experience because it's a first person little short. Is that... Does, does that cause you a problem, or are you trying I mean, to do there's both still, as there's well? St- we're trying to do both, mm-hmm. I think. You're trying to reach people in different ways. Um, and, you know, fortunately, there's still an appetite for the terrestrial films. Our young audience has grown recently, so more young people are coming to the, to, to the television offering. Um, and I think if you, look at, if you look at some of the Netflix and some of those um, channels... They've got, they've got lots of feature docs, international feature documentaries on them. You know, you're talking 72 or 90 minutes. Mm. Um, and people are going to those documentaries. Everyone, we're only a little 24 minutes. Mm. You know, there's clearly an appetite for more in-depth international coverage as well as the, you know, the shareable, more digestible shorts, I think. I think. I'm springing this on you a little bit, but a couple of things have come up about, you know, making a difference. The Ebola film made a difference. And... I've thought about, you know, why, why, you know, I don't do documentaries, I do global health stories for BBC News. I, I covered the Ebola outbreak um, quite, quite a bit over the last couple of years and just asking, you know, why, why you do it? Why is it so important to, to tell these stories? Um, and I, I suppose I just wanted to ask each of you about, you know, why do you continue doing this? Why do you think it's so important that it is, it is continue to be done even when there is a lot more appetite for shorter, quick hits? Shorter, quick hits, as in... As in, you know, when you're online, you know, you, the, there are people that just want, you know... You can get it in 20 seconds, you know, somebody's experience. So why continue doing well, the half an hour, doing the long form, and, and just generally doing this line of work? Well, for me, um, it's, it's all about the story. So as, you, as, I, as I said, I started off in print, and I spent many years um, writing for newspapers. Um, and it doesn't really, you know, these skills are really transferable. So I've done print, TV and radio. And I, you started as a radio journalist, didn't you? So a great story is a great story. Um, and since I started 2003 reporting, it, Ed, doesn't, it just becomes, it's part of who you are. Mm. I, I cannot imagine life without foreign reporting. It really is just part of my DNA now. And, you know, you can say, oh, because I want to, of course you start off saying, because I want to shine a light, because I want to give people a voice. And, you know, these things can sound quite trite. And everybody, I think, has, have their, has their own personal reasons. And I think for all of us, some of it is quite selfish. Mm. You know, some of it isn't just about shining a light. It's also because it makes me feel better, because when sometimes I'm in those situations, um, I feel alive. Because when I do connect with somebody, when I feel that human connection... Um, it makes me feel more human. So, yeah, I, I think these things are so personal, but... Yeah, I mean, I think we have a responsibility, you know, because one of the things that Unreported World has taught me, I think, working on those films, is just how lucky we are to live in this country, you know, in this time. We're incredibly privileged, and out there in the world, you know, people are, are living lives that we probably could not stand for even a day. And I think I've always felt... Um, a duty almost, you know, to take the privilege, the fortune that I've had, and to use it to try and do something to ameliorate the situation in the world, you know, because we can't just, I mean, you know, Brexit and all of that, we can't just sit back and say, we're all right, you know, good luck to the rest of you. Because as we've seen in the refugee crisis, you know, that just doesn't work. We don't live in that kind of world. And I think that it's so important for people like us, you know, that we give something back, basically, to to the world as a whole, you know, that we use the opportunity we had to, to do something to help other people. I mean, and you very much make the decisions about what gets on and, and what doesn't. I mean, what's the driving force for you, Siobhan? Well, I think I'm in very, very lucky and privileged position to work for a broadcaster that has got um, giving underrepresented voices uh, that aren't heard elsewhere in the mainstream, foregrounding those voices. You know, that's in Channel 4's DNA. It's what it does. It's part of what it was set up to do. So that is me. That is me doing my job. You know, Channel Four has um, has always championed those sorts of stories, and yeah, and will continue to. So, 
Yeah, I feel very lucky to be in the job that I'm in. And you've been doing it for a very long time as well, Eamon. So many years on, what, what, what is it that kind of keeps you passionate? Oh, it's what I talked about earlier, that, um, you know, people talk about flyover people, and there are billions of people in the world who are, if you like, regarded as flyover people, that they're not worth in Asia or Africa or even in Europe. You know, they're not worth, their opinions aren't worth anything, their experiences aren't worth anything. If you want to find out about a country, you go and talk to the politicians or whatever. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. And I believe that, that you know, truth is a great disinfectant. Truth ultimately can cure problems by making people face up to them. And that's what I think we're about. So I know it can sound, ah, probably does sound pompous, but that's what <coughs> drives me on. Because I think, you know, if you're going to do something, it's got to be worthwhile. If you don't think it's worthwhile, well, go and do something else. Okay, um, so we've got about 10 minutes, I think, for questions. So uh, if you have any, I think there's a, somebody with a microphone over there. Uh, just very briefly, I'd love to ask this question, and it's probably one more for Yvonne and Eamon, please, Tulip. It's if you could say a little bit about what is the ecology of the kind of broadcast landscape this sits in? How did it come into being this strand? What were the kind of predecessor antecedent programs that gave it? And how did it kind of survive in the architecture of the schedules, the transmission schedules of Channel 4? I'm sort of fascinated always by the kind of ecology of the, and what, you know, what was the lineage? What was the genealogy of how it came about? Sorry, that sounds very long-winded, but... Well, Eamon's yeah, well, probably... You were there. Well, I don't know, or yeah. George can tell you. I, th I, I think... I, I remember that it started as four parts on globalisation, and I had to go and look up what... No? Not quite. Someone should give George yeah. a microphone. Um, is there another microphone? Because George can tell you. I do remember having to go and look up what globalisation meant. It was a new <laughs> word then. It was a... Um... Well, I think it's, it, it started um, with that quite common thing you got in those days was a document from Channel 4 saying, we're, we're thinking of doing a foreign affairs program. And if you sit behind a desk like I did in those days a lot, um, you think very hard, what's missing? What do, what, why do they want this program? What isn't already there? And it did seem to me that the main characteristic of uh, foreign reporting was sort of chaps, mostly chaps, going around the place uh, kind of as though they knew what was going on. And I knew from years in news and things like that that most reporters were, you know, however competent they were, had probably just flown in and were guessing. And that I thought a key thing was to try and come up with a program where the audience shared the experience of discovering what was going on. Um, so you're right, uh, Siobhan, in the early days it was heavily reporter-based, but I, I remember saying, in addition to uh, Eamon's very elegant uh, dictum that I laid down about involving themselves, that the reporters must be scared when they're scared, show they're scared, and be um, puzzled when they're puzzled, so that the viewer could... Um, shared the experience, frankly, of discovery. And in terms of the ecology into which it fitted in, it was a desert. I mean, it, it, it's what I like about being here is watching you talk and how much you've thought and see these incredible clips that how well it's developed. But in its early days, when it wasn't, it didn't have much variety, we were learning on the road. They, it was nonetheless remarkable in the way it stood out from other sorts of reporting. And what I quite like, apart from the sheer pleasure of, you know, kind of having a few trace elements of the early DNA and seeing them on the screen there, is seeing when I watch reporting on the news and things like that on other programs, that some of the ideas we had, Eamon, in those early days about what reporting should feel like and what how you should immerse yourself, indeed, in a world that was unreported. I mean, it's quite, kind of, it wasn't rocket science, it was just what it says on the tin, really. There we are. I mean, that very, I mean, it is interesting, as you say, the way that, actually, in your reporting, I'm not saying you got it from unreported world, but we just see much more. It's a natural thing now that a lot of younger reporters do. They're just much more casual in, 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 casual in the best sense of the word, and, 
you know, intimate with the viewer, if I put it like that, less rehearsed, not, not parachuted in from presenter land. Vroomf, yeah. here I am in a, a, a tie or a cocktail frock. You're immersed and, and you're there and you're yeah. feeling it and it's real. And here are some people dying near me. <laughs> yes, you know, it's not yes. like that anymore. Um, and, I, and I think the other thing, picking up on what George said, um, something that influenced me a lot. You know, I'd worked on Panorama and shows like that and you tell stories in the pub afterwards and people you know, say, oh, it was amazing and this happened and that happened. And people say, oh, I didn't see that in your film. You say, oh, no, we don't put in things like that. And actually, they, they often were things that told you much more about the country and people's lives than any of the more standard guff. I'll be brief. I'm the head of news and current affairs at Channel 4. And actually, this programme was started out of a sense of duty. I worked at Channel 4 at the time. But what this programme has become, uh, because of the amazing work of George and Eamon, who I regard as two of the outstanding television journalists of the era is a program which um, really cares about people that nobody else cares about and that has been the thread that George and Eamon began that has run through it all and on behalf of Channel 4 I just have to say you know it's a magnificent program it's a key reason why I still work at Channel 4 and uh, I, I just have to say a huge thank you to everybody. I've always wondered while watching documentaries, or, um, like how does a reporter keep her or himself from helping the subject? Uh, since as a reporter, you're not supposed to interfere in their lives. Well, that was something about Unreported World that, you know, some of the reporters, they would help. You know, in, just to, in terms of what George and Eamon were saying about allowing their humanity to to be free and, and uh, letting that loose. They did. I mean, I remember Aidan and I did one in Yemen where we saw uh, refugees back in 2009, refugees walking along the road in the middle of the desert, and we just stopped and gave them all our food and water that we had. And one of the first reporters who was absolutely brilliant on Unreported World was Sandra Jordan. And she was someone who, you know, she would, she would stay in contact with people that uh, we'd met for like years, you know, and send them money if she could to help their kids go to school and stuff. And I think that was another thing that was so amazing about Unreported World was that, it, you know, it, you had real human beings and they were able to engage with people, not in the way that, say, the more formal, um, you know, formal news outlets would have done. But, but then you can't help everyone either. And, um, and sometimes, like in India, you know, that what you don't see is we go on, we went on and there were just hundreds of people who were mining in that way and you're just faced by this sea of people, you know, all in these desperate plight. And so, I don't know, in those kind of circumstances, it's where do you begin, I guess. So that wasn't our role. We felt that the film was the best thing that we could do to kind of make a difference to their lives. What about you, Ramita? How's it? Because... Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I've always felt quite strongly that I'm, you know, first and foremost, especially when I'm working on films um, where somebody is telling me their story because they trust me, you know, Ramita the human, that's built up a rapport with them. I'm, I'm a human first and foremost. Um, and yes, you instinctively want to help. However, you know, you have to think about it. It's tricky. Sometimes you just absolutely can't. You know, in a refugee camp, for example, um, if... Uh, if other families find out that you've helped one family, um, it could be dangerous for the family that you help. And also, you, you have to be really, really, really careful that your help is never seen as help, and then you get the interview. So if there's help, you, you must always, 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 always get an interview first. You know, absolutely, that you have to be really, really clear about that. So it, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. But I, I always approach it on a really human level. However, you must go through, you know, there's an absolute mental checklist. Would I put this person at risk? You know, is, this has got to be post-interview. Does it look like I'm in some way paying in kind for this interview? Which, of course, is an absolute no-no. And I'm led first and foremost by that, really. I wanted to ask about finding the stories because they're such powerful stories and yet they are unreported. And you did say that you had some assistant producers whose job it was to help look for the stories, and I just wondered how they went about that. It's really, really tough. Um, and it's tough because, you know, Siobhan keeps the bar very high, and I think it's an important part of why the series keeps going. And 
the thing I probably repeat the most, and then you should pick up your board, I, I think it's George Orwell who said the hardest thing to spot is the thing under your nose. And often it's a matter of looking what's happening in the world, talking to people in different countries about what, what's, what's happening in their country, not what's necessarily being reported in their newspapers, but what's affecting the lives of ordinary people, or what's on the uh, front page of the local tabloid, not, not the broadsheet, and then saying, hmm, that's interesting, what does it mean? So that you're constantly looking at what's happening in the world, interpreting what it means, and then you start to see patterns. I, I think a lot of television is about identifying patterns, if that doesn't sound too esoteric, about suddenly saying, I'm, we're seeing a lot of this type of story. Oh, right, it's to do with the fact that the world is young, and in some countries, 75% of people are under 18. I get it, and suddenly what someone might dismiss as a sort of trivial story, um, you realise is part of a huge pattern. I, mean, I think in, in practical terms, stories come from all over the place. I, think, I mean, we literally do sometimes stand in front of a blank sheet of paper and write country names on it and think, what have we last seen and what's interesting? And we've got this country here and what's happening here? You know, we do a lot of brainstorming, but then we also we work... With, which is really important to mention, I think we work with an amazing network of local journalists over the years, over 31 series, that has really been built up, lots of people that we come back to time and time again, and they're a brilliant source for stories. So, you know, it might not have made the papers here or websites here, but they, they will either come to us or whenever you phone them saying what's happening in, in Sao Paulo or in Seoul or whatever, they'll come up with those stories. Um, and then... Um, I know this has probably always been the case, but Danny Bogado particularly was always brilliant in looking at photojournalism and photo essays because it is a visual medium. You're not just looking for stories that would make a great newspaper article. You have to, they have to be great pictures as well. So we look at a lot of those resources as well. So they, they, um, they come from all over the place, really. Have you ever gone out to, uh, for a story and you've only got the three weeks and you've had to come back without the story or it's been a completely different story you've come back with? <laughs> um, <laughs> there were plenty of times. Oh, yes, quite <laughs> a few times. Definitely. Where the story's changed. Where the story's changed. Yeah, nobody's ever, nobody's ever come back, I don't think. Nobody's ever come back without a story Once. altogether. Which, which wasn't their fault. They sadly got thrown into jail. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. We let them off with that. Selfish. Um, yes, we did say you're not coming back without the rushes. But we relented. Um, no, being, being, being more serious... Um, Teams have sometimes shown amazing skill um, where a story's gone down and we try a bit harder now to have backups, but on some occasions we haven't had backups. And they've just said, fine, and they've rolled their sleeves up and they've they've just done it. And, in fact, there was a clip um, in the the compilation, uh, Afghanistan's Hunted Women, which I remember mm. very well. They'd gone to do a very good story, actually, to get inside Bagram Prison, and the Afghans had given them the access because Afghanistan now controlled Bagram Prison, but then the Americans heard about it and said, hang on, you may control it, but we still call the shots. Bang, you're not getting in. And they, uh, with the help of local journalists, locked into that story, and it was an amazing film. But they did that from a standing start on the ground, and... You know, I, I think a lot of people in this room will have had to do that, and we don't like it, and we try not to let it happen. But um, often the teams have got a good idea about the stories we're interested in, and the huge... I mean, one thing I can't emphasise enough, and I should have said it more, is Unreported World, yes, it's about the characters, but it's about the filmmakers, it's about the directors and the reporters on the ground. They're what make it happen. You know, people like me now just sit in a white box and, you know, it's people on the ground, the decisions they take, minute to minute, their, their creativity, their imagination, their journalistic skills. That, and so, yes, that does happen. But I bet that's brilliant energy as well. I bet that brings something completely different to that, possibly to that film, you know, when it's so... The immediacy of it, it's changing. Definitely a lot of energy at that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not necessarily positive. Some, yeah, but some, some, I mean, it's very, actually, it's very rare that things fall down completely once people are in country. What does happen sometimes is in the week before um, teams are about to fly out and they, 
if, if your entire film was dependent on a very specific key piece of access and somebody new is elected or somebody gets sacked or, and, and your access goes with it and we have to um, think of a replacement at the, at the last minute. And in all honesty, some of our best films have, have come through that, that way, you know, um, because I don't know why, but there's a certain magic that happens when there's that, that, you know, you've got to find something in a very short space of time and things do come through. And some of our best films have been made that way. Definitely not by design, but um, it has turned out that way. Okay, well, I think we have to finish there. Um, thank you all so much for taking part and for some excellent questions. Thank you so much to the panel as well for your passion and your commitment to making these incredible films. Uh, Amy Matthews, Siobhan Sinaton, Ed Watts, and Navita Navar. And Navita thank you, Claire, for organising. <laughs> and and Tula. And Tula. Thank you very Thanks for listening to this BAFTA Heritage Podcast. To hear more from this series, you can subscribe using a podcast app or go to bafta.org forward slash heritage. Hold up. 